Hello, and welcome to the final episode of the Collection Public Art Podcast. I'm Roxandra Bajak. The dome of Old College is lit up at night until about 1 a.m. I know this because my bedroom window looks right out at it. Perched at the very top is Golden Boy, a gilded statue of a man holding a torch. The dome and Golden Boy make up my own personal nightlight and define my view of Edinburgh. He's my golden bay. Personally, I'm a fan of public art. Golden Boy means a lot to me. But that's just me. I just think it adds story and personality to a place. I dig it. But maybe not everyone does. Plus, art is expensive. It takes up space and resources. So why do we get so much of it? Why do we bother? This podcast is supported by the University of Edinburgh's main library, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary, where connections come alive. Share your favorite memories through text, photos, and or video of your time at the library by tagging at edunilibraries using the hashtag uoelib50 on Facebook and Instagram. Some people might love the personality public art adds to a place. The history it provides or tells, the way it enhances a public space and gives it use. Other people may see it as a waste of space and perhaps never encountered good public art, only eyesores. A waste of space or funds, so some might ask, well, why don't we spend that money on something else? To that, it's important to know budgets aren't that easy. They don't work that way necessarily. And anyway, public art usually happens from special commissioning bodies, dedicated organizations, or private firms. Or it comes as part of a much larger project, like, as I mentioned in episode 3, some places require new builds to put a certain minimal, tiny percent of their build budget to some aesthetic aspect to some art. And in renovation projects, it can be easy to put in some art as part of it all, like in Bristow Square, those bronze droplets were part of a huge, huge project on the area and McEwen Hall. So you can't really just throw the money elsewhere that easily. Anyway, a lot of people do enjoy public art and see value in it. Now for a touch of econ, just to put my minor to use. To think about the value of public art, it might do some good to frame it as a public good, or at least to see how well it fits into public goods. A public good is something non-rivalrous and non-excludable. So that means if one person benefits, there's just as much left for someone else. There's no limit to the number of people consuming. Unlike if you buy the last chocolate bar, there's none for me. And non-excludable means you can't be stopped from consuming it, or just I can't provide this thing and keep others from benefiting. So art and culture as big things concepts, that's an ongoing debate in economics about whether it's a public good or not. But I think public art by itself, especially like large sculpture, is fairly easy. A statue, just like street lighting, once it's up, I can't stop people from enjoying it. If you look at a statue, there's still statue left for someone else to look at. And yeah, with all the different mediums and forms of public art, this can be a case-by-case issue. We can't say it all is public good always, but we've been talking mostly about physical sculpture and statue type art, so I'll stick to that, and for now just say, let's think of it as a public good. The big problem with public goods? Free riders. The free rider problem. A classic econ conundrum. Individuals can use the good and benefit without paying a cost toward it. So they can win and not contribute to whatever keeps that good going. 
think someone who loves public parks and public sculpture and all these beautiful things, but they don't want to pay any sort of tax or fee to maintain those things. Free rider. Now, the supplier doesn't have much incentive to supply. It's very pricey. Nobody wants to pay. So why bother at all? An important detail I passed over with public goods, they're usually provided by a government. Because of the non-rivalry, non-excludability, public goods are usually underprovided in free markets, which is why they are often provided by the government out of taxation. Firms usually don't want to provide a good without being able to charge for its use. But public art, we kind of have a lot of it. Really, I think you'd be hard-pressed to figure a daily walk in a city that doesn't pass by some art. And remember, of course, public art can be on private property with private funds. So that's a bit of a complication, but these big organizations or corporations or governments funding art, why are they doing it? Sure, it creates a space. It gives personality to a public space or city. People enjoy it, get some visual aesthetic joy. Those are all nice things. For us, the people not paying for it. Not directly, at least. So why is someone giving us art? What did we do to deserve this? And is it all well-intentioned? Of course, sometimes people do things because of just being good people, having motivations other than money and power, which is behavioral economics and you'd be surprised is actually kind of contended point, but that's besides the issue right now. For the sake of this little episode, I'm just going to say altruism's no fun, there's no drama there. Saying we have art because of altruism and just love for beauty is boring and wouldn't cover the whole story of it anyway. The concern now is about agenda. Art is doing good things, but good for who? Maybe we get the art, we the public, but what's it really getting at? The first thought here is often propaganda. How do you have anything paid for by big money not be a form of propaganda, something to demonstrate power and importance? Art is such a luxury type thing, at least it's associated that way, so to be able to afford and provide such a big deal thing, a thing such as art... Well, you must be quite important. And this isn't me just kind of speculating. If we look historically, art really does play a huge part in old political dynasties and governments using it as propaganda. So for this, I wanted to talk to an actual professor of art history. Apologize so greatly for that, but now it's okay. So do you want to ask me the question again? And I'll try and... This was my first interview for this project. I can ask a different one and then we'll go back to it. But I guess okay, well firstly what I want to do is just get- uh, so I am Katrina Murray. I am a lecturer in history of art and uh, my research focuses on um, propaganda and its publics. So I'm interested in representation and reception. And right now I'm working on a book uh, which looks at the Stuart dynasty and their relationship with public sculpture. So I'm interested, I argue, that the Stuarts are the first uh, English monarchy who really realised the potential of erecting monuments in public spaces and how that can communicate all sorts of authoritarian messages. Um, But I'm also interested in what happens when you start to put royal representations in public spaces because they can become quite vulnerable to the public and the public can do amazing things to sculptures. There are instances of them dressing up 
uh, Stuart statues, uh, of writing letters to Stuart statues, and also uh, obviously um, destroying Stuart statues as well. So there's some really interesting interventions. So what's the value in this, in public art? Why do they make such use of public art, of royal representations in public spaces? Uh, One important thing, which is that the monarch wasn't visible. You know, the monarch was based uh, in London, in the capital, during this period, and even within that, in royal palaces at Whitehall, St James. So erecting a statue in Edinburgh, or in Hull, or uh, Bristol, made the monarch suddenly visible to a much wider audience. Um, So it's about kind of expressing the omniscience of the monarchy, that their power is everywhere. Um, And also with lots of statues, you can represent yourself in lots of different ways. So you can be a Roman emperor in one location and you can be a scholarly king in another um, location. So it allows you to kind of develop lots of different uh, public images to project uh, to your people. Um, So it does have a, a, a political motivation behind it, yes. And it's... They're designed to persuade, I think, you know, uh, and to, yeah, to, to express the reach of royal power um, beyond the capital. Um, what, like, forms that take besides sculpture specifically? Okay, so I'm interested in sculpture, but uh, the ancient Egyptians, you could say that the pyramids were a form of um, public art, uh, and... I think we can also include performances as a type of public art. So uh, funeral processions or entries into cities where um, very often there was some sort of temporary architecture that was uh, constructed into the city. So interventions. Um, And then what else? Uh, I guess you could even say that sometimes print culture formed a type of public art not necessarily always um, approved of by the authorities. Uh, But most uh, taverns, for example, were pasted with engravings and woodcuts. And so even they, you can kind of conceive of them as public art spaces. Mm. Uh, So yeah, it's really vast. It's uh, architecture, it's monuments, it's performances, it's print culture publicly displayed portraits as well you know it's, it's really vast they were really um i would say in particularly in britain from the early modern period onward they were very conscious of audiences and trying to reach an increasingly diverse audience so historically there is a lot of political value in public art there's a lot of use in art for furthering some bigger message and purpose for enforcing rule And this is kind of important for the history of of art in general, furthering its forms and its funding. And while it's especially obvious in the early modern period and times with like real dynasties and whatnot and, and monarchies, the purpose of public art as a sort of propaganda political tool, it didn't completely get left in the past. Remember way back when, in episode one, teaching fellow Harry Weeks gave us some thoughts on Nathan Coley's library work, the basic materials, not the word, but the letter. Well, now you get to meet him formally. 
So my name's uh, Harry Weeks. I'm a teaching fellow in contemporary visual cultures uh, at the University of Edinburgh in the School of History of Art. And my background's really in uh, community arts and socially engaged practice. Um, more recently, I guess I've been more interested in uh, institutional questions, the role and the role that art plays within the city, um, the role that art institutions play within the city, and the role that public art plays within the city, um, and particularly how art contributes to processes like urban regeneration, urban branding. Um, yeah. Cool. So, what do we think the university's purpose with all this public art is? Why do they bother with it? What are they trying to do? And why do any big organizations today bother? So just to start going off of what I talked to uh, Professor Murray about, how do you see the purpose of public art when it's commissioned by public institutions? So kind of specifically, I'm working with the university and why the university is bothering with putting in so much money into different commissioned pieces and installed pieces. Um, I guess I guess there's no hard and fast answer in general. Um, in the context of Edinburgh University, it's such an enormous institution. Like it's so easy to forget how big Edinburgh is, particularly within the context of Edinburgh. You know, I think it's maybe the second biggest employer in the city, and probably amongst the biggest kind of landowners in the city. So, so Edinburgh University has such an enormous stake in the city of Edinburgh. And vice versa, you know, you can't you can't look at Edinburgh without factoring in the role that Edinburgh University plays. So, in terms of the public space of the city, Edinburgh University is this enormously visible presence. Um, the university, therefore, I guess, has a lot of sort of commitments to how that public space presents itself, or how how that public space exists, and how people how people act and 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 use public spaces. And so public art becomes a means of trying to engender a particular kind of use in public spaces, a particular, a particular aesthetic of public space. Um, so I, I guess broadly that's why an institution like the University of Edinburgh would be interested in its public art. Um, in the context of here, I suppose, there's also all these other factors in play, like a lot of... The university's collection obviously has some kind of roots in the university. It has some kind of, uh, they have some kind of connections to the history of the university or people who've been associated with the university. Um, so, so someone like Paolozzi, Eduardo Paolozzi, figures very prominently in the university collections and particularly in the public art um, side of things. Obviously, this is, uh, you know, he he's one of Edinburgh College of Art's most well-known graduates. So being able to kind of situate him publicly in the city of Edinburgh is has this double has a double benefit for the university in that it acts as a kind of a reminder to the city of its own significance historically its own importance or, the, or at least the importance of the art college in this in this example um but yeah i mean it varies so widely if you think about if you think about sort of i guess an art gallery's or an art museum's interest in public art um, would be totally different, really, to that of the university. Um, i trying to think of examples within Edinburgh. There isn't all that much, is there? <laughs> anyway, yeah. Because I'm very tempted, perhaps just as a 
I want to be edgy, to associate the word propaganda still with public art? Because I know Mm -hmm. historically it's very easy to say, like, "Ah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Would you say it's as easily applied for today's commissioning processes and, like, what what you're saying the university is as a reminder of how big they are? Exactly, yeah. So when, when I'm saying the university... Uh, has a stake in public space and all this, you know, in a way that's a very neutral statement. That can take many different forms mm-hmm. of, and, and you could take many different kind of critical aspects onto that process, including various degrees of public art acting as propaganda. I would say that over the past, so certainly over the past 30 or so years, and then maybe even more, um, extremely over the past five years public art has resurfaced as a subject of real discussion around the kind of the politics that it's intertwined with most notably i would say um in the context of its use in private development of the city so there's a curiosity of the word public art in the, or the phrase public art in that it's it, it situates the word public incredibly prominently in fact you know public some some claim to publicness defines what public art is and yet increasingly what we see now is is public art emerging from private contexts uh, or public art being used in in you know this this phrase gets used a lot now privately owned public spaces semi-public spaces or pseudo-public spaces so there was there was an article in the Guardian last year that received quite a lot of attention, and it was about a Sarah Lucas artwork in London, um, and I've forgotten the name of it. It's called something like the Marrow, I think. Anyway, it's <clears throat> it was sort of put there by um, private developers in the local area, and its real purpose is to raise land values and 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 you know act as some kind of symbol of the gentrification or regeneration or of a particular area. Um, but the, the, the reason that the article kind of was, was kind of amusing, was quite interesting, was because uh, one of the traditional terms for public art serving this kind of function as a sort of, as an addition to an architectural development um, is a turd in the plaza art. And... Uh, and and that that was a phrase used. I, I forget the name of the architect, but it but it comes from an architect who basically described what 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 role it plays for the for architects. As in, architects don't want there to be a piece of public art ruining their nice perfect plan for for this this new developed newly developed area. But developers want the public art there. And in some cases, developers have an incentive to put public art there because then. Um, you know, that might fulfill various kind of civic functions of private companies or private developers. Um, but yeah, this, this, this Sarah Lucas sculpture looked exactly like a giant golden turd. And so it became a kind of symbol of like the return of this model of turd in the plaza public art, where there's no real consideration to, to the public who might, you know, engage with this work. There's very little really aesthetic consideration of the work. It's purely... It's purely there as a kind of function of the developers of the area. And so, coming back to the question of propaganda, I would suggest that that is kind of what the contemporary propagandist function of public art might be, or somewhere in that area of public art appearing to be neutral and appearing to be appealing to this idea of the public, 
and yet primarily being designed to serve the serve the interests of private developers and that kind of duplicity around the word public um, it may not be propaganda in the sense of you know propaganda for a particular state or or a particularly kind of clearly discernible ideal ideology but it's certainly propaganda for it's it's a very kind of soft subtle form of propaganda for a particular type of ownership of the city or a particular type of way in which the city should be developed and the politics that that sort of lies hidden underneath that so when you say like interest for the developers that was again the raising of property rates and that type of kind of economic value that it would then have an effect on. Yeah, so if you, I mean, if you look at if you look at new developments, so there's one in Leith, just like at the end of my street, that's opened a new development that opened um, shortly before Christmas, and in the middle of it, you have a load of kind of cannons and some slightly kind of landscaped bits of grass and. And and that is it may not be public art in the sense of it having been commissioned by you know by um, commissioned of, of of a kind of well known artist, but it's serving that function of just being something that beautifies the local area that that um, that is just that it, that is meant to be a kind of signifier of a certain type of use. I said earlier that that you know in a way one of the things that public art can do is is regulate what kind of use an area has. So there's a really famous example in the 1980s of um, Richard Serra's Tilted Arc in New York City and the way in which that kind of precluded basically an enormous sheet of of steel going across a public square um, that was sort of deliberately antagonistic to how people utilised that square because they couldn't cross from one side to the other without going around this enormous thing. Um, And... And that's one of the things that public art can do, and that's one of the things that pub that developers have increasingly been aware of public art's ability. It can almost, it can kind of subtly control the ways in which people would use a space. So, this area in the middle of a development in Leith, which otherwise might be somewhere that, for instance, like kids would play, uh, that's no longer something that people see it as an option. You know, you you don't let your kids play there because it seems a bit more protected. It's not you know you don't play around art. So. So subtly, the kind of uses of public spaces have changed. So, so in terms of kind of developers' interest in public art, it 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 has a, a function of beautifying an area, which would that would be one way of increasing land prices. But it also has a kind of more symbolic function in determining what a public what what a space is for, and that in its own right might have an impact on the value of an area, value of property in that area. Right. And I guess it's kind of important. Tilted Dark was eventually taken down, I believe, yeah, because yeah. it kind of was that <coughs> disruptive to the use of the square. It was. I remember I was reading or saw it in some sort of mini documentary the very dramatic story of Tilted Dark and how. Yeah, well, in a way, Tilted Dark is really crucial for the history of public art because it opens up so many of the debates around who is public art for, um, and indeed, like, and why public art should exist. So one of the, in a sense, public art has long kind of benefited from uh, the kind of goodwill that art in general gets. As in, you know, why no no one really asks the question of why public art should exist. In the case of Tilted Arc, it was so antagonistic. It caused so much kind of consternation amongst 
the people who utilised the square, and that was totally, you know, part of the, 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 you know, the design of the of the object. Um, but it ended up raising a lot of these sort of slightly unspoken debates around who is public art for. Um, should it be of benefit? What role should it play within public space? Um, it raised all of these questions. It made a court case out of them um, that was projected over many, many years and included you know, testimony from all sorts of people from both the kind of urban, the urban background, so people, you know, architects and local urban designers, but then also, um, also sort of Richard Serra's contemporaries amongst the art world, uh, all fighting over whether Tilted Ark should survive and on what grounds it should be considered to be art or whether it should be, you know, how it could be considered successful art. And one of the, I mean, in fact, the, fi the final reason, one of the final reasons that it was removed was that it was actually a terrorist threat because they couldn't necessarily remove it purely because it wasn't that popular. They had to find a specific legal reason to break their contract with Richard Serra. So one of them was that, that it represented, uh, it, it, it presented a danger in that terrorist blasts could be, could bounce back off the arc onto the, the federal building that was opposite. So that was one of the reasons it was finally removed. And in the final um, assessment of whether it should be removed or not, the judge who was presiding over the case made the argument that those who had fought for its removal, there weren't as many people who were fighting for its removal. They didn't hear as many testimonies from people who were fighting for its removal. But they argued with more ferocity and more passion than those who thought it should stay. And so, so there was a kind of... The, the final removal of it was underpinned by this sense that, that public art, from that point onwards, had to really justify its public function, its public existence. And so for a long time after that, you have this period of, you have things like new genre public art, Suzanne Lacey, an artist in, in the early 90s, pioneered and, and named. And this was like public art that was really rooted in um, a desire to help communities and to, to exist for communities and to be co-authored by communities so that local communities felt that they had a, a kind of stake in the artwork. Um, but then I... I, I you know, going back to what I was talking about before, I feel like in a way we've regressed again back to the kind of the before the the tilted arc debate in that actually the public response to artworks is not so significant or is more muted in terms of its importance in decision making. Perhaps it's not as strong and obvious a thing of propaganda, but public art today does come with some, well, not completely based on altruism alone. We have to also think about what the actual effect becomes, what the interpretation leads to, other possible issues with public art. Because while it maybe it is well-intentioned, the outcome might not be what we all wanted. Often, when we try and revive neighborhoods, when councils and organizations try to help from the outside, they hurt. A gallery or museum goes up, and then suddenly all the property rates rise. People can't live in the area anymore, get forced out of their homes. Things are demolished and rebuilt, and it becomes Brooklyn. We get gentrification when we try regeneration. So does public artwork present this same threat of gentrification that some other institutions do? So with Tilted Arc, mm -hmm. it was sort of a... Um, 
the problem there was the disruption and then eventually the terrorist threat of it and all that. And I want to get to that question of gentrification because, mm-hmm. as, you, as you mentioned, a lot of the idea by developers is beautification of an area. Yeah. And just going way back, again, how you've mentioned institutions very often go into a community with this kind of very positive, hopeful, optimistic purpose. And then the community just, instead of regenerated, is gentrified. Mm-hmm. And we, we like with many different artistic institutions, that turns out the unfortunate, uncontrollable kind of result. Mm. And I want to ask if artworks themselves tend to do that. I know in my experience, like in New Jersey, I tend to identify towns that have sculptures in the median of streets. I always think, ah, oh, they have high property taxes immediately. Uh, so yeah, I want to ask you, do public artworks tend to have a negative effect on communities in the same way that sometimes galleries have done? I think they certainly have the, the capacity to. Um, they, so in that example of New Jersey, I mean, you, you, the same, I guess, kind of like roundabout art would be the, I mean, you don't have roundabouts in New Jersey, I guess. <laughs> Not so, not, not, not so, so many, <laughs> but you know, in the UK you have, and and you know, around Europe, I mean, it's it was big in Spain as well for a period. There was a big emphasis on roundabout art. That every roundabout, because it's a kind of it's an unused space, that that bit in the middle of a roundabout, should have some kind of artwork in it as a, as a kind of filler for space. But one of the things that roundabout art begins to show you once it takes off as a thing that people are putting money in is which areas are getting that investment and which areas aren't because there's only so much money to produce relatively kind of cheap but impressive spectacles of public art um, in the middle of a ra- in the middle of roundabouts and so it tends to get distributed to those areas that have kind of higher uh, that either have a, a, a sort of higher socio-economic demographic associated with them or that people are looking to attract a higher you know, look, are looking to regenerate, are looking to, you know, look at, um, to, 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 you know, draw in a new, um, more middle class, upper middle class communities into an area. So they, so public art does tend to be a good kind of um, indicator of regeneration and of gentrification. Um, it's also, also, I think it serves, it serves kind of different, more complex functions that are maybe even more, maybe more interesting, maybe more potentially kind of a bit upsetting if you if you feel like you have a um a stake in in art being a positive thing so um there was a there was an example a few years ago um in the Haygate estate in South London in Elephant and Castle um and the Haygate estate was being demolished um over the course of you know it took them about 10 years I think it was this enormous enormous public housing um, development uh, that was, I think, was built sometime around the 1960s, 70s. Um, eventually, came down in about 2012. And Art Angel, who are a public art commissioning body, um, they proposed to do a project with uh, Mike Nelson, British artist, um, in the Haygate Estate as it was being torn down. Um, and the the housing development was made up. It's, it was kind of 
built in a, a modular way where each flat was almost like a Lego brick that you could, you know, they were sort of stacked on top of each other. Their proposal, Mike Nelson and Art Angel's proposal, was to, as it was being taken down, to rearrange the flats into an enormous pyramid. And this was seen by kind of some local residents. There was particularly there was a, there was a sort of activist group called Southwark Notes as being a total affront to people who had lived in this area, people who weren't happy that it was being um, that it was being taken down. And and there's all sorts of symbolism around pyramids and slave labour that have you know, negative connotations associated with it. And there was there was this enormous, enormous reaction against this proposal um, in that it seemed to be a perfect embodiment of where, of art siding with the developer over the community. Um, so that was a really kind of controversial case. Um, there was an article written last year by uh, someone who used to run a public art program for the Serpentine Gallery called Yana Graham. And she used a really, like I think, really useful phrase, which is the diplomatic condition of art. And I think that's, that's a really nice way of looking at actually the, the main role that art plays, public artworks can play in the process of gentrification, which is that they tend to smooth over the cracks. So in the context of the Mike Nelson art angel thing, you have the demolition of this estate, you have the removal of all these communities who lived in this estate, and there was enormous controversy around where they were being relocated to, because most of them were being relocated to other social housing, like not only on the outskirts of London, but some outside of London, you know, 50, 60, 70 miles away. There was enormous controversy around that. There was enormous controversy around what was going to happen to the, the Haygate estate land after it had been redeveloped. There were, all, there were promises that it was going to be more... Uh, it was going to be renewed social housing. Uh, in actual fact, it's it's all just in the process of opening at the moment, and it's you know the cheapest flat is one point two million pounds and things like that. So there's all these controversies going on, and the easiest way to look at what Art Angel and Mike Nelson, what they thought their role in this was, was to kind of smooth over things. Not necessarily, you know, not being so cynical as to suggest that this was Mike Nelson's sole kind of. Um, uh, rationale behind the artwork but the reason why their proposal might have been welcomed by the local council and local development local developers sorry is that that it it presented a nice spectacle that people could look at and say oh isn't that nice oh, that's a that's a that's an interesting um that's an interesting project that looks nice and it'd be the kind of thing that the sort of guardian reading middle classes of london would go to at the weekend and go and you know see this nice public artwork and the narrative around that would quieten down all of the narratives around the displacement that was going that were going on um around the kind of the lack of social housing that was that was being uh, offered in the new uh, use of this space and so i think that idea of art functioning as a as a sort of a diplomat and and cooling down debates and controversies that emerge from gentrification um, processes, I think that might be the role that public art sort of plays most and most effectively. Yeah, that's really, so that and that can definitely be digested positively as a sort of this is a nicer type of thing. And then I feel today with everyone more and more active and more and more aware, 
it's harder to get away with wanting to smooth over these sorts of uh, negative controversies and stories and whatnot. Yeah, I think you can look at the way, the way in which I think over the past 10 years, we've just become so much more aware of what gentrification is as a mm-hmm. process. And it just seems to, you know, it's a word that is now, I think, in common you know, common usage, it's not its not some kind of lofty a- academic term anymore. It's something that people are aware of and people understand and people can see it going on around them. We have we have the kind of critical faculties to, to recognise and, and respond to gentrification kind of more, more widely available to us now. And so something like 10 years ago, you know, not, not long before Mike Nelson's proposed project, there was another project that Art Angel did just down the road with an artist called Roger Heons, um, called, I can't remember what it was called, but it was a flat that was filled with, um, it was a uh, flat in another kind of local social housing development that was empty and it was filled with copper sulfate, blue liquid, that was then left sealed and then left to evaporate over the course of three months or whatever. And it left copper sulfate crystals so it's, this is an experiment that kids in the UK, I don't know, I don't know whether you did it at school, but like no. I remember vividly doing, uh, making copper sulfate crystals at school. And it's these very, like really vivid blue crystals. Um, so, you know, if you, if you have a, a, a beaker of copper sulfate and you put um, a bit of string with something attached to the end, around the end it will kind of crystallise and you have a blue crystal at the end of it. They did this the entire inside of a flat. So they turned this flat into a sort of cave of incredibly luminous blue copper sulfate crystals and it achieved it performed this diplomatic condition absolutely perfectly so it was like the go-to activity that you do at the weekend in London during the sort of three months that it was there you know it had enormous visitor numbers of queues around the corner to go and see this thing um but that was, I think, maybe something like 2008. I can't remember exactly. And that was, it was during a period when the question of gentrification wasn't on people's, uh, on, you know, it wasn't at the forefront of their minds so much. And so there wasn't that response to actually, well, what, what larger systemic structural role is this artwork performing? The response to it was much more kind of purely aesthetic. This is a beautiful thing that we need to go and see rather than what role is this playing within the kind of the local urban environment? But you fast forward five years and you get to Mike Nelson and the project doesn't even happen because there's so much outcry over it. And I think that's kind of indicative of the extent to which we are increasingly socially more aware of how gentrification functions and also what role art might play in that process. With all these possible not great things, it's important to remember just how good public art can be. And I'm not just saying that for the sake of this podcast. Public art commissions go through a long process of review and planning with many different people of different professions and expertise to make sure it has value beyond just being big and expensive and to make sure it isn't problematic. Just sometimes these processes don't work out perfectly and they don't fully predict what the art will be used for or how it will be read. So we still bother, because maybe we'll get something that people love, that gives public spaces real directed use and purpose, that might sway a public opinion or just create some positive change some way. There's so much art, and so much good art, 
so many subtle interventions, so many things really adopted by the community, really owned by the local community. And to bring us back to good art, to some positivity, I thought I'd fill the rest of this episode with, well, people talking about public art. Because after all this, with how complicated it all is, and potentially problematic, and potentially wonderful, I still love it. I still love public art. I guess that was, those were like the his, his Have I done it? And now it's just like, I want to know, like, do you like public art uh, as it's happening? Uh, I think I like bits of it. I think Edinburgh's got some fantastic public art. I love um, the Martin Creed steps that lead from the train station onto, uh, onto they're the Scotsman steps. Where do they lead up to? They lead up to North uh, South Bridge. I know. Have you been up there? I love those steps. They're lovely. I always really, feel like yeah. Maybe not we all, but a lot of us who never studied anything to do with arts, we think of arts in terms of, um, you know, something that's beautiful, something that evokes positive emotions. Mm -hmm. But that's rubbish. That's not. That's not what art is. Art is supposed to evoke emotions. But they can be positive, they can be ugly, they can be the ugliest thing in the world, as long as it, you know, inspires you. Do you have a favorite public work from the University of Edinburgh? I mean, it's a really boring one because it's probably the most obvious, but I, do, I think the way that the Paolozzi mural has been kind of repurposed, sorry, not mural, mosaic, mm -hmm. has been repurposed for the purposes of, as a kind of teaching aid and and it having like have this 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 there's more interest in the fact that it has an altered function now than I hope they never I hope they don't try and finish it. I know. I, I saw listening. <laughs> I saw the big pamphlet of like taking suggestions by people on the idea of a ghost arch and Yeah, it, no, just keep it as a load of lumps and, and I really like the the new one that's the oh is it the little oh, I should have wrote this down before I came up. Um little things. Oh, the, the, the droplets. Yeah. The Susan Collis. Things, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I really like the Susan Collis <laughs> um, new um, installation. I think that it fits really well with the kind of new renovations that went out, went around in that area, and um, it's something that's you you might not notice it the first time you walk past it, but because I walk past it every day, I kind of notice little bits and little bits, and it kind of made me want to follow it and yes, yeah, see, you know, see where it leads. It's almost like a little. Um, yeah, yellow brick road. <laughs> well, I haven't seen Susan work, but I do like the sound of it. I know her work. I saw the she did a similar thing with Mother of Pearl in um, the Ingleby Gallery, and I thought that was fantastic. So I look forward to seeing it. Uh, so theoretically, my favourite is the Susan Collins piece. <laughs> I think there's room for more sculptures. And I think I might twist the question slightly and say that the work that surprised me the most or the one that I got really excited about because of when I delved into it in the history of it was probably the Ashworth um, buildings, reliefs, um, partly because as a student and when I'd been in King's buildings I hadn't really noticed them um, and that's got to do with the fact that they're quite up quite high on the building. But also the fact that um, when I've told people about them and have seen their reactions of, oh, 
lovely, lovely work that I'm just like reinvigorated um, by it. But yeah, I think I think Phyllis Bone's work on the Ashworth on the Ashworth Building. I think yeah, I think that one. The Collection Public Art Podcast is a production of the University of Edinburgh and the Centre for Research Collections. It is written and produced by me, Rexandra Bajak, executive producer, University of Edinburgh Art Collection. Music by local composer, Joseph Stevenson. If you'd like to know more about these items and other items in the collection, please visit the university's collection website at collections.ed.ac.uk. Better yet, you can see these items online at images.is.ed.ac.uk or, of course, out and around the university. My name is Roxandra, and as always, thank you for stopping by the collection. This podcast is supported by the University of Edinburgh's main library, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary, where connections come alive. Share your favorite memories through text, photos, and or video of your time at the library by tagging at edunilibraries using the hashtag uoelib50 on Facebook and Instagram.